Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. 2021 is almost over, and today we are going to look at the big story of 2021, which uh, the big Catholic story, which would be Pope Francis's motu proprio, Traditionis Custodes, particularly uh, the latest development, just in time for Christmas, the new document from the Congregation of Divine Worship and the Sacraments, announcing even more restrictions on the traditional Latin Mass. Also, later on in the show, we're going to talk about the coming Feast of the Circumcision, uh, the 1st of January, which is a holy day of obligation traditionally, and uh, we're going to talk especially about devotion to the holy name of Jesus, the name he received at his circumcision. But as always, going to start with the readings for the Sunday that began this week, which was the, the Sunday in the octave of Christmas, and the epistle comes to us from Galatians 4, verses one through seven. As long as an heir is a minor, he is no different from a slave, even though he is the owner of it all. He remains under the supervision of guardians and trustees until the date designated by the father. This is also true of us. As long as we were children, we were enslaved to the forces of this world. However, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent into our hearts the spirit of his Son, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you are a son, then through God you are also an heir. So, how do we understand the words, God sent his Son born under the law, in order to redeem those who were born under the law. Well, St. Paul's addressing the Christians of Galatia who were formerly Jews and who considered themselves uh, still bound to keep the Mosaic law. But Paul shows them that by his death on the cross, Jesus dispensed with the old law. He abolished the, the, the ceremonies. He fulfilled the, the types and figures. He redeemed the Jews from the curse and the bondage uh, to which the old law subjected them. That is to say, by the cross, he delivered them from sin and eternal death, right? which the Old Testament sacrifices couldn't do. But you know, when you think about it, uh, those of us who are descended from the Gentiles have received even greater favors than the Jews did, because they were the chosen people. They, they were the children of the promise. But my ancestors you know, converted to Christianity from paganism. You know, they, they, were, they were children of the devil, you know, who were... Uh, and they went from that to, to being co-heirs with Christ. Therefore, I think that, uh, you know, today we should be especially grateful to Christ and, and to show how much we value his blessings by rejecting sin as really the only evil and by living as children of God, you know, to, to live in faith and, and confidence and patience, you know, unless we would you know, prefer to forfeit our name and privileges as Christians, as so many are doing today. I don't think they don't realize they're voluntarily becoming the slaves of the devil once more. And it just shows how, how irrational it is to abandon the practice of the faith because sin has consequences. All right. And now the gospel for the Sunday in the octave of Christmas, which is taken from Luke chapter two, verses 33 through 40. Uh, it says the child's father and mother marveled at what was being said about him. That is Jesus. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, 
This child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the secret thoughts of many may be revealed, and you yourself a sword will pierce. There was also present a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very advanced in years, having lived with her husband for seven years after their marriage, and then as a widow to the age of eighty-four. She never left the temple, but worshipped with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment she came forward and began to praise God while she spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the deliverance of Jerusalem. When they had fulfilled everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's favor was upon him. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now this gospel describes you know, what happened at the presentation of Jesus, which is the fourth uh, joyful mystery of the rosary. And the first thing that stands out is why did Mary and Joseph wonder at what was being said about Jesus? Did they not know who he was? Right, it's like that one Christmas song, Mary, did you know? Well, <laughs> of course she did. The angel Gabriel told her in advance, right? She, she told Mary that, that her child would be the son of the Most High and that he would save his people from their sins. Likewise, Scripture says that Joseph discovered that Mary was with child by the Holy Spirit and recounts how an angel appeared to him in a dream to tell him not to be afraid to take Mary into his home as her wife, even though she was the mother of the Messiah. What filled them with joy and wonder was that Simeon recognized Jesus. He knew, uh, you know, by divine inspiration, that Jesus was the promised Messiah, and, and therefore he said all these great things about him. The Gospel also says that Simeon blessed them, that he blessed the Holy Family. So there's a question. What, is it, what does it mean to bless? I mean, we talk about blessings all the time. Uh, and at the most basic level, a blessing means to give or, or to wish something good to someone. Okay? In the highest sense, uh, God alone blesses because all goods of soul and body, which we have or would like to have, come from him. You know, there's that old saying that, um, you know, you can't give to God anything he didn't give to you first. You know, you, you can't give to him anything you didn't receive from him with the, with the single exception of your sins. <clears throat> and when you do, if you want to know what that looks like, you know, just take a glance at a crucifix. Okay. So in the highest sense, only God blesses because he's the source of, of all good. Um, but in a secondary sense, angels and men can bless. Uh, and they bless us in wishing us whatever is good and in praying for that to God. Well, obviously, Scripture's uh, filled with examples of blessings. Uh, an angel blessed Jacob, and then when he was dying, Jacob blessed his children and his grandchildren. Uh, Melchizedek blessed, uh, blessed Abraham. Rebecca was blessed by her brother. Um, the priests of the Old Testament often blessed the people. And then in the New Testament, here we have Simeon blessing the Holy Family, and our Savior blessing his disciples, and so on. Church tells us it's especially good for parents to bless their children because God fulfills the blessings of good parents, as, for example, he did the blessings of, of Isaac and Jacob. But what about priests? You know, I think uh, these days that we sometimes kind of blur 
um, the priesthood of the faithful with the with the priesthood of the ordained. You know, so is there a special virtue? Is a priest's blessing, um, you know, does it possess something that, that the blessing from a layperson doesn't possess? And of course, the answer is you bet. <laughs> Priestly blessing is great virtue because it's given in the name of the church, because it's given through the merits of Jesus Christ, and because Catholic priests are his ministers and stewards that blessing really comes from God himself. And so it's good for parents to bless their children, but they should also see that their children are blessed by the priest. You know, For example, when you're shaking hands with father after mass, ask him to bless the children. I mean, if he doesn't just do it spontaneously, I know a lot of priests that do. You know, Or if a, prison, uh, a priest comes to, to visit your home, have him bless the children. And you know, this, this is the same thing as as the children who were brought to Jesus in Matthew 19, that he could lay his hands on them and bless them. And he said, suffer the little children to come to me because he wanted to give them his blessing as he wants to bless us. Uh, let's see, after Simeon blessed them, he said to Mary, this child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel. So what's he talking about? Well, Christ is the fall, and traditionally that means the damnation of those who do not receive him, though they know him to be the savior of the world. Okay. <laughs> that, that's, that's the, that's the condition. And also he is the fall of those who believe in him and receive his teaching, but don't live according to it. You know, um, next week we're going to talk about hell and, and here's an example, yet another example of, of scripture teaching about it. But on the contrary, Christ is also the rise or the resurrection. That is the salvation of those who believe in him and receive his doctrine, and do live according to it. And then he also, uh, Simeon also prophesied that the child would be a sign that will be opposed, or as other translations have it, a sign which shall be contradicted. And that's a prophecy that Jesus Christ, his life, his works, his teaching, uh, his institutions, would be the subject or the object of continual contradiction on the part of the world and worldly wisdom. You know, uh, and it's been fulfilled in, in the blasphemies and, and persecutions of both the Jews and the Gentiles, and, and it continues to be confirmed by, by infidels of all ages, as well as by those Christians who, in the words of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, and you didn't think I'd get through the first part of the show without mentioning St. Bernard, um, St. Bernard of Clairvaux talks about Christians, he said, that, that contradict his humility, Christ's humility with their pride and his poverty with their avarice, and his fasting with their intemperance, his purity by their impurity, his zeal by their sloth, thus confessing him with their lips, but denying him by their deeds. They're not faithful and sincere toward Jesus, and they do not love him, for they do not obey his holy will. They are Christians in name only, of whom Christ is not the resurrection, but the fall, for they are yet slaves of sin." All right, and that's no nonsense. Okay, when we come back, we're going to be talking about the big story this year. Also, uh, another couple of things about um, the prophecy of Simeon, all that and more. Holy name of Jesus. When we return, lots more no-nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. Glad you're here.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Going to be talking in just a bit about the big story of 2021, big Catholic story, um, and the um, year in review, if you will. But um, we were talking before the break about the prophecy of Simeon, which was from the last Sunday's gospel. And his final prophecy is addressed to the Blessed Virgin. He says, and you yourself a sword will pierce, or a sword will pierce your soul, or will pierce your heart, again, depending upon your translation. But in every case, the meaning is clear, that Mary would have to suffer uh, these inexpressible pains and sorrows that would pierce her heart with a sword. And, and time made that plain. I mean, how often was our Lord pursued and persecuted? And how much must she have, have suffered? But um, all the saints and doctors agree the greatest grief that she felt was when she saw her son in his suffering, in his passion, and his death, you know, hanging like a criminal on the cross. And the saints and doctors tell us that her pain was greater than any of the martyrs because it was a spiritual pain and a spiritual pain that was experienced in a soul that was completely without sin. And a final thought, we can learn also from Anna, the prophetess, especially those of us who are getting a little uh, a little grayer as the years go by. Uh, scripture says she never left the temple and that she continually served God by prayer and fasting, which is something that we can all do. And uh, uh, the final words of the gospel is that parents can learn to be careful that their children not only increase in you know education and skill or in wealth, but in the grace of God, uh, by encouraging them to live pious, edifying, and peaceable lives before God and men. As the scripture said, when they had fulfilled everything required by the law of the Lord, the child grew and became strong. He waxed strong, as the old Dewey Reem says, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Finally, the, uh, the Sunday in the octave of Christmas is the last Sunday of the secular year. And it's a good time uh, to ponder on the truths and the doctrines which the Holy Church lays before us in the epistles and gospels. Uh, it's a good time to thank God for all the great favors and benefits that we've received uh, through the incarnation, through the birth of Jesus Christ that we we're celebrating. And it's a time to examine ourselves. You know, is my faith living and active? Do I, do I live like a child of God or do I live like I'm Catholic in name only? Years about to end. Has Christ been my fall or my resurrection? Now, these are the kinds of questions that we should occupy ourselves with until the new year so that we can be prepared to begin it worthily. Okay, and that's no nonsense. Now, as I mentioned, in the coming weeks, or, you know, days and next couple of weeks, uh, a lot of folks in various media are going to be doing their year in review. And, you know, that can be fun. It can be entertaining. Uh, it's an opportunity to look for the unexpected triumphs and failures uh, of the last 12 months. But, you know, <laughs> you got to be careful. I, I've seen one already that, that I think uh, takes the prize uh, for the, for the, on the nonsensometer. And that is that the Biden administration is claiming that the economy under Joe is better than it was under Trump, with a specific claim that uh, Joe Biden has added more jobs to the economy in one year than Trump did in four uh, <laughs> the reckoning being that while Trump's economy added 4 million jobs, Biden has added 4.8 million. See, 4.8 is, is more than four. Now, of course, this is, this is grade a, uh, grade a prime nonsense. And why? Okay, well, let's review. 
Uh, I recall when Trump was running back in 2016, how uh, President Obama and Vice President Biden laughed him to scorn over the promises he was making regarding jobs and the economy. He lives in a fantasy world, they said. You know, where are all these manufacturing jobs going to come from? Uh, I remember that was Obama. Where are these manufacturing jobs going to come from? He going to wave a magic wand? You know, he said that the days of more than 2% economic growth are over and we will never see 3% growth again. So said the, the mighty O'Biden. Okay. <laughs> Let's not forget that Biden was uh, an active part of the Obama administration. And yet, in less than four years and virtually single-handed, see, see not, not just single-handed, with almost everyone in the political establishment on both sides of the aisle fighting against him tooth and nail every step of the way, not to mention the, the 24-7 barrage of, of uh, lies in the media, including a bunch of uh, false legal accusations, four million jobs were added to the economy including more than 400,000 manufacturing jobs. You know, in fact, more Americans were employed than ever in our country's history. He didn't wave a magic wand to bring man back manufacturing jobs. He just instituted rational policies. By 2018, economic growth hit 4.2%, twice of what it was during Biden-Obama. New unemployment claims hit a 49-year low. The median household income hit the highest level ever recorded. African-American unemployment, the lowest rate ever recorded. Hispanic-American unemployment, lowest rate ever recorded. Asian-American unemployment, lowest rate ever recorded. We enjoyed the lowest unemployment rate ever recorded for Americans without a high school diploma, and veterans' unemployment reached its lowest rate in nearly 20 years. Okay, that's, that's two years into Trump's administration. And we had, I don't know, out of 300 million Americans and how many, I don't know how many are available for the workforce, but the statistics that the government gives us say that there were 6 million Americans without jobs. Now, when the left shut the country down over COVID, that number soared to 11 million. And now things are starting to open up. 4.8 million who had lost their jobs, or maybe I should say had their jobs stolen from them, are now back to work. That's not adding jobs to the economy. Okay. Fewer people are employed. The inflation rate in the United States is almost twice the average of the rest of the developed world. This very month, Biden's approval ratings hit an historic low. It is amazing to me how few people are happy about the election of this guy who allegedly got more votes than any previous candidate in U.S. history. Okay. So you have to take, uh, take these year and review things with a grain of salt. But, uh, but as a traditional Catholic, the big story for 2021 has to be Pope Francis's, well, let's face it, authoritarian or, or dictatorial suppression of the traditional Latin mass. Now, you know, I, I actually said some weeks ago that I was going to stop talking about Traditionis Custodis. But, you know, just in time for Christmas, the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Sacraments published its list of 11 responses to alleged dubia from the bishops who apparently needed help figuring out how to suppress the extraordinary form. And I say alleged because, you know, um, th there is some question about whether uh, the bishops who were um, polled in the first place really wanted to see uh, the, the end of the traditional mass or really thought it was that big a problem. And, you know, we're kind of, uh, I'm, I'm dubious about the dubia, let me put it that way. 
Um, but there was an article, and there's been, of course, a, a lot of people have been writing about it, talking about it. It's just become quite a tempest in a teapot. Um, and not coincidentally, perhaps, at the same time that the synod on synodality is happening, we're not hearing very much about that. Got an awful lot of attention being placed on this, this crazy suppression of the traditional Latin mass, and not a lot being paid attention to what the bishops are up to right now, uh, synoding about synodality. But you know, we'll talk about that next week a little bit. Um, however, in an article on the Remnant uh, Remnant newspaper website, and all of, you know, I have to full disclosure, they are a traditionalist website. Uh, Christopher Ferrara, who you may remember from the Terry Schiavo case, he was one of the lead lawyers trying to uh, get the people in Florida to do the right thing. Uh, he cut to the chase, though, with an article on the Remnant newspaper site uh, with a bullet list of the responses. You know, he, he kind of stripped away the the alleged questions and the explanatory notes and just gave us the nuts and bolts. So the 11 responses. Number one, traditional priests who refuse to celebrate the Novus Ordo Mass are to be stripped of their faculty to celebrate the traditional Mass. Okay, so if you're a traditional priest and you won't say the new Mass along with your fellow uh, priests in the diocese, no more Latin Mass for you. Number two, no priest ordained after the publication date of Traditionis Custodis, okay, so summer of this year, may celebrate the traditional mass without permission from the Holy See, right? Not just the bishop. you got to get permission from the Vatican. Number three, permission to celebrate the traditional mass can be limited in time. In other words, a bishop can give the faculty, but only for a time, uh, in principle, even a single day. Number four, no one may substitute for a priest who has permission to celebrate the traditional mass unless the substitute priest also has formal authorization from the local bishop or from the Holy See, as the case may be. So your traditional priest is sick. You, he can't just be replaced by any priest, uh, but only one who has the specific permission. Number five, the bishop's permission to celebrate the traditional mass is limited to the territory of his diocese, outside of which... The priest in question is forbidden to offer the traditional mass. Now, that's more restrictive even than John Paul II's original 1984 indult. What they're saying is if, if a priest's bishop gives him permission to say the traditional mass, he can say it in the diocese, but if he travels to another diocese, he, he's forbidden to say the traditional mass. Okay. Uh, number six, those few priests left who are authorized to celebrate the traditional mass may only celebrate one such mass per day, right? No matter how big your, your congregation is, you can only offer the one mass. Number seven, no priest may celebrate the traditional mass on a weekday if he also celebrates the Novus Ordo mass on that day. Okay, so, and how many parishes do you have the situation where the, the priest there is, you know, required to say the Novus Ordo mass and is saying the traditional mass in addition. And what that does is effectively eliminate daily traditional masses in, in most places that uh, have them or could have them. Number eight, no other, no deacon or other instituted minister may assist at an authorized traditional mass unless he too has special authorization from the bishop. So this is a way to, to kind of try and eliminate uh, high mass where you have uh, the priest, deacon, and subdeacon, you have those three liturgical roles that are being played. And, and the deacon, subdeacon role can be taken by another priest, by a deacon. Uh, the subdeacon role can be taken even by an acolyte, you know, who can, who can say, chant the epistle. They're saying, no, no more of that. 
unless you have special permission from the bishop, of course. Nine, the traditional mass must be banned in parishes. They're, they're doubling down on this. Um, somebody said, and they brought up an actual practical thing. This is the one thing that may be legit in all of this, um, is they said uh, in Traditionis Custodes that you can't have the traditional mass in a parish church, right? Unless it's a church that was erected for that purpose, like an FSSP or Institute of Christ the King Church, you know, which are rare as hen's teeth. Um, and the thing is, in, in a lot of European countries, there's a church every 10 feet, you know, <laughs> and there's all sorts of uh, uh, chapels and, and uh, uh, you know, oratories and, and, and religious houses and so forth. But in the United States, not so much. Pretty much parish church is the only option. And so uh, what are they going to do about that? What was the answer from the Congregation of Divine Worship and the Sacraments when it's impossible to have another place to celebrate the Mass? Well, I'll tell you about that and more when we return. Lots more no-nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Good to have you with us. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Okay, welcome back to uh, No Nonsense Catholic. Great to have you along with us talking about the 11 responses to the dubia about Traditionis Custodes from the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Sacraments. Before we get back into that, I do want to mention, since it is the end of the year, only a few days left in 2021, if you're looking to make a donation to Virgin Most Powerful Radio, one-time donation, now is a good time to do that. It is your last chance for the tax deduction for the year of our Lord 2021, and we certainly can use the help. So if you go to Virgin Most Powerful Radio website, it's bmpr.org, bmpr for Virgin Most Powerful, bmpr.org. Right on the homepage is a big blue button that says Donate. And you can click there and give us a one-time donation right there online, or you can call the office, 877-526-2151, and uh, uh, speak with somebody there about making a one-time donation or setting up um, an account as a monthly donor. Lots of good perks for those who donate every month, especially at the uh, $25 or more per month level. Um, Become a monthly donor. That's really kind of the lifeblood of the apostolate on the uh, financial side, and we could certainly use your help. Okay, so tax-deductible donation, the the window is closing on that, so if you're interested, um, please, please uh, don't hesitate. All right, <clears throat> pardon me, back to our list of responses. We were talking about number nine, which says that the traditional Mass is to be banned in parishes. It must not be celebrated at a parish church unless it was erected for that purpose, and and you can't erect any new ones, according to, to Traditionis Custodes. However, what happens if there's if there isn't any place if there is another no other uh, uh, suitable place to um, to celebrate the traditional mass? Well, uh, number nine of the responses says that if it is impossible, and that's a pretty strong word, to find another place, uh, the bishop can ask uh, the Holy See for permission to celebrate the traditional mass in a parish. That doesn't mean they're going to get permission, but but they can ask if it is, quote-unquote, impossible. But with this caveat, that if permission is granted 
to celebrate the traditional Latin Mass in a parish church, it must not be included in the parish Mass schedule. Okay, so it can't be on the website, can't be in the bulletin. You know, if you have a stable group, which was, uh, you know, one of the things that you, you must have a stable group of worshipers before you can have the Mass at all, well, they're already going to know. And God forbid anybody else find out about it. You know, it makes you wonder what they're afraid of. And number 10, priests celebrating the traditional Mass according to this dubia, must proclaim the readings in the vernacular using translations of the Bible approved by the bishop's conferences, right, as opposed to the traditional, the traditional translations that you'd find in the traditional missal, uh, which is, you know, in English, that would mean the Douay Reims or the confraternity version. I have a 1962 missal that uses the, the confraternity version of the Bible, which is essentially a... Uh, modern revision of the Dewey Reims. It was done under Pius XII. Uh, they did the New Testament and the Psalms. And then it was abandoned after Vatican II uh, for the New American Bible. But uh, you can't use those translations. You have to use, in the approved translations of the United States, that means exclusively the New American Bible, which is going to get tricky because the New American Bible wasn't translated from the Latin Vulgate the way that the, uh, the other older translations are. And so you run into <clears throat> probably problems. For example, there are certain Marian feasts, and this just popped into my head, where they uh, use that prophecy from the book of Ecclesiasticus. I am the, the mother of fair love, etc. right? This is a prophetic about the Blessed Virgin Mary. Well, that isn't simply poorly translated in the new uh, version, in the New American Bible. It isn't there at all. You know, they, they used some different uh, uh, a source document, so that verse doesn't even exist. How are they, they going to read that reading if it doesn't exist in this translation? You know, and that's, and that's just one problem. I, you know, an awful lot of people will, uh, of the traditional bent, uh, you know, are upset about how tone deaf and, and kind of theologically uh, suspect some of the, uh, some of the uh, translations are in the New American Bible. You know, I... I use it myself. And I've mentioned this many times. I use the new American Bible when I speak and when I write precisely because it is the official translation of the Bible for the liturgy. It's the one that most Catholics are familiar with. Most Catholics don't know the old Douay Reims anymore. Nobody's reading the Latin Vulgate anymore either, you know? Uh, so they are familiar with this new version of it. And so that's the one that I use, you know, when I'm speaking. Although these days, as I've mentioned several weeks ago, I've discovered the new Catholic Bible, which is the uh, translation that was done from Roman uh, from Catholic Book Publishing Company, and uh, it's very similar to the New American Bible in a lot of ways, but it retains more of the uh, traditional. It's more formal, you know, it retains more of the traditional translations, and so it's you know it's not perfect either, but it's a better option, I think. But unfortunately, that's not approved for liturgical use in this country. Only the NAB, and that's that's going to be a problem uh, with the traditional Mass. <clears throat> even if, you know, for now you can still follow the traditional calendar. And then finally, number 11, you know, in Traditionis Custodes, uh, uh, Pope Francis seems to think that he has abrogated the traditional mass. I mean, they pointed out it was never abrogated, right? That's Bennett 16 said that. Now he says it has been, that he has, he has done that. Now, a lot of this stuff in Traditionis Custodes and, and especially things that are being done by the individual bishops, 
Like as soon as, I mean, the ink wasn't even dry on this when Cardinal Supich then put out his own guidelines for the Diocese of Chicago. Um, and, you know, which includes, he says, you know, you can only have mass in the, the traditional mass three Sundays out of the month, right? One Sunday out of the month, you have to celebrate the Novus Ordo instead and, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. He banned um, Auto Orientum in the Novus Ordo, right? He said, you you know, if you're doing the Novus Ordo mass, you, you can't do it. Uh, facing the altar, that kind of thing. Uh, and and that's going to create a problem because that that goes against the general instruction of the Roman Missal and canon law. You know, there was another bishop that said, you can't do anything in the Novus Order that's an imitation of the old Mass, just you can't do it in Latin, <laughs> you know, which is hysterical because uh, the Latin Missal is the normative version. And of course, every, every uh, uh, Roman priest, every Latin rite priest, it certainly has the right to say the Latin Mass the Latin rite mass in Latin. And I'm talking about the Novus Ordo here. Anyway, um, the Pope now claims to have abrogated both the uh, Pontificale Romanum, which is the rites performed by bishop, as well as the Rituale Romanum, which is the the rites that are performed by priests. And what that means, and, and this makes it clear, this new document is that ordinations, confirmations, according to the traditional rites, those things that are proper to bishops are now forbidden. Traditional right weddings, baptisms, funerals, okay, with the exception of, you know, the, those unicorns, those those few canonically erected traditional parishes that were already extant before this document, right? So if you've got an FSSP parish or an Institute of Christ the King parish in your diocese, um, they will be able to do the, the old sacraments there, but not anywhere else. And of course, most dioceses do not have these things. And that means, you know, the upshot of this is that the traditional sacraments are almost nowhere going to be permitted. Now, Cardinal Roche, who is head of CDW, uh, makes the motives behind these new restrictions clear, because that's the question people have. Why are they doing this? And he said that the whole purpose of Traditionis Custodes is to compel the bishops, and I'm quoting now, quote, to ensure that his diocese returns to a unitary form of celebration. In other words, Novus Ordo only, traditional mass need not apply. That is the end game of Traditionis Custodis. It's the extinction of the traditional Latin mass. Or is it the extinction of the traditional faith itself? You know, I mentioned the fact that it seems weirdly coincidental that they're making this big tempest in a teapot over the traditional liturgy. At the same time, they're doing the, the, the so-called synod on synodality. Synodality. How many of you heard, have heard the opening address or even heard about the opening address that Pope Francis did for his synod on synodality? There's, a, there's an important quote. He said, there is no need to create another church, but to create a different church. I'm going to read that again. He's actually quoting Yves Congar from back in the Vatican two days. He said, there's no need to create another church, but to create a different church. I see, I live in a world where words mean things. So let's take a look at that. What is he saying? He doesn't want to create another church, right? He doesn't want to create a church that's a rival to the Catholic church, like the Lutherans or the Presbyterians. He wants to create a different church, a different Catholic church. What does that mean? Again, words have meanings. That means he wants to change the Catholic church into something other than what it is and always has been, which is to say to, to, to remake the church in, in, in his own modern image. 
This is their hermeneutic of rupture in on full display. And it seems to me a contradiction to the purpose of the papacy, which is to pass on what you have received. The truth is immutable. The truth doesn't change. How, how can you legitimately talk about creating a different Catholic church? See, I've long maintained that Vatican II did not change the teaching of the church and that the council documents have to be understood according to the church's perennial tradition. I mean, that's Catholicism 101. That, that's what Benedict called hermeneutic of continuity. But, you know, I was preaching that long before he came up with the term. You know, but for decades, you know, there have been Catholics at all levels, uh, all levels in the church, all throughout their hierarchy, who, who act as if Vatican II did change the teaching of the church. And frankly, the result of that is that the religion of a good many Catholics today is not the faith of their fathers. You know, I recently read a, an article by Father oh, Laurent-Marie Poquet de Haute-Jouset. Okay, and I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering that. But he's a French religious priest. Uh, in fact, the former superior of his order, the Servants of Jesus and Mary, which was founded by an ex-Jesuit because he was too traditional for the Jesuits. Anyway, this priest comments on Traditionis Custodis and the responses from the CDW by highlighting several paradoxes or really contradictions in the new policies uh, versus the Vatican's former position, including moral, theological, canonical, ecclesial, even psychological paradoxes. And he, and he calls it that. It's called Very Instructive Paradoxes. It's on the Rorate Chaley website. It's worth reading in its entirety. When we come back, I'm going to focus on just a couple of points from that document and lots more here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back, No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Hey, we just before the break, we were talking about an article called Very Instructive Paradoxes, which is on the Rorate Chaley website. And like I said, I believe it's worth reading in its entirety. But the author, Father Laurent-Marie Poquet de Haute-Jouset, and I'm sure I'm messing that up, a French uh, religious priest, um, points out these paradoxes, or in my opinion, really contradictions, in the new policies versus the Vatican's former position on the, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the traditional mass and including moral, theological, canonical, ecclesial, even psychological paradoxes. Now I'm going to just, uh, uh, focus on a couple of points. First, the theological paradox. My father points out that in the span of just a very few years, the magisterium has affirmed two contradictory positions. Benedict XVI authoritatively affirmed a fundamental and indisputable theological principle with regard to tradition. He said, quote, what was sacred for previous generations remains great and sacred for us too, and cannot all of a sudden be totally forbidden or even considered harmful. It is good for all of us to preserve the riches that have grown up in the faith and prayer of the church and to give them their rightful place, rightful place. It's not a permission. If anything, it's an admission. But Pope Francis enunciates a perfectly contradictory doctrinal principle, namely that the traditional form of the Mass and the Sacraments, which has for centuries built up the Church and given us an army of saints, 
must today be considered precisely as dangerous and harmful and therefore be forbidden. That's not a, a mere paradox. That is a direct contradiction. And a contradiction is a nonsense. Logically speaking, either one of these positions is wrong or they're both wrong, but they both can't be right because a thing cannot be and not be in the same sense at the same time. You see, the, the fundamental problem is that Traditionis Custodes is built on two misconceptions, two false principles. The first is that the new mass was, quote, willed by Vatican II, unquote, which we've been over again and again on this program. And I assure you, you can read Sacrosanctum Concilium. You can read the Vatican document, Vatican II document on liturgy until your eyes bleed and you will not find any mandate for a new order of the mass. And the second false principle, number two, is that Benedict XVI, according to Traditionis Custodes, quote, granted the faculty to use the Roman Missal edited by John the Twenty Third in 1962. Benedict XVI did not grant permission to use the 62 Missal. On the contrary, he declared in words of one syllable, okay, you can't read that document and not understand this. He declared that no permission is needed or was ever needed. That in fact, not, not in theory, but in fact, every Roman Catholic priest has the right to say the traditional Latin Mass without any special permission from anyone, not his bishop and not even the Holy See. So Pope Francis and, and the CDW's new policies are therefore not only, well, in my humble opinion, cruel and incoherent, but they are demonstrably in direct contradiction to Francis's immediate predecessor. And his job is to pass on that which he has received. Now, Father uh, Laurent Marie also suggests a way out. And in, and in a final paradox, you know, he says that it is undoubtedly possible to get out of the crisis by following the example of Pope Francis. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, I'm sure you remember back in July 2015, Pope Francis invited Catholic youths to, quote, make a mess. Remember that very famous quote, make a mess of things. I want you to, to you young people to make a mess. Well, Father Laurent Marie points out that what characterizes the traditional movement in the church is the youthfulness of so many of its members. You know, it's, it's the young people that are discovering tradition who don't have a dog in the fight of the old Vatican II polemics that are embracing the new liturgy. And so it's up to them, according to Father uh, Laurent Marie, it's up to them to show some boldness against the conformism uh, and, and self-righteousness conveyed in so many places by these new liturgical forms and to work uh, for their right to promote their identity as traditional Catholics. You know, in the same way, he, he points out how the present Pope never ceases to scold Catholics who focus on norms and the letter of the law and who, uh, quote unquote, always hide behind structures, right? Because they're, they're afraid, because they fear adventure and risk and the God of surprises. Well, Father rightly points out that this casts a rather har harsh light on what he says is the avalanche of paralyzing norms that seek to neutralize or even eliminate a reality that is both new and ancient in the church. 
And then he, he reminds us that in June of 2019, Pope Francis recalled the necessary freedom of theologians. He says, therefore, these new norms and the disciplinary measures taken against the old liturgy, quote, must now be the object of a true examination and must be judged in the light of moral theology, the rights of persons, and the true good of the faithful, unquote, and amen. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Between you and me, I'm not particularly concerned with his latest attack on tradition from the modernists in the church. Yes, it needs to be exposed. Yes, it needs to be resisted. But I'm not all that worried about it because, for one thing, I have personally personally witnessed the 100% fidelity with which the bishops obey the Novus Ordo liturgical norms. I mean, for example, the way that they that they never use altar girls or extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion unless it's absolutely necessary. <laughs> All right. I've also seen the latest results from the Pew Research Poll about post-COVID church attendance. Now, compared to the pre-lockdown numbers, attendance at the Novus Ordo is down by another 14%, where attendance at the traditional Mass is up 20 Now, we're talking about uh, uh, diocesan churches, right? The uh, uh, authentic or uh, uh, authorized traditional masses. Now, what does that mean? That means that if a parish where they celebrate the ordinary form had 100 congregants before COVID, they now have 86. But in a parish where they celebrate the extraordinary form, if they had 100 congregants, they now have 120. Okay, obviously there are far more ordinary form parishes than traditional ones, but the undeniable fact is that even with all these new restrictions, one group is growing while one group continues to decline. And there's a reason for that. These are crazy and confusing times. And in such times, Catholics naturally turn to tradition because tradition can be trusted, because the truth doesn't change, because Jesus Christ is the same uh, yesterday, today, and forever. And the job of the, of the Pope is to defend and clarify and pass on what he himself received. Like I said, it's Catholicism 101. So simply put, what traditional Catholics are defending is not merely a preference, but an apostolic and patristic inheritance that rests on the deepest of theological foundations. Okay, you know what? Um, I saw another article. I'm, I'm afraid we're not going to have time to talk about devotion to the holy name. And as that is uh, what we associate with the Mass for New Year's Day, we'll cover that next week. Also going to talk about uh, uh, the other things that I mentioned. Um, when we come back next time in, in 2022, it'll be a brand new year. Um, also, I'm going to talk about, you know, I don't define a, a traditional Catholic as somebody who exclusively attends the traditional Latin Mass. I define a traditional Catholic as somebody who can say the act of faith and mean it. And I just saw an article that's asking if it's time to abandon the term traditional Catholic. And I think there's some merit to that. Uh, that's, you know, what I, that's why you prefer the term no-nonsense Catholic, uh, because it doesn't have all that baggage. We'll talk about that next week also. Uh, and uh, before we go, I got a question, and I, I talked about this last year, but I, I want to bring it up again. Um, and I got this question that says, why is A.D. Anno Domini in Latin, is it Latin, but B.C. in English? Did English even exist back then? 
what are the real abbreviations historically from that time period? That was the question. Well, the designation Anno Domini is Latin, and it means the year of our Lord. And the custom of dating the current year from the incarnation of Christ was introduced in Rome by an abbot named Dionysius Exiguus in the year 525 AD. Prior to that time, uh, the Roman calendar counted the years from the foundation of the city of Rome, right? And they figured it made more sense to, now that the pagan empire was gone, that we would uh, uh, count time from the birth of Christ. But it took centuries for the common use of Anno Domini to spread all throughout Christendom. And the custom reached England in the 8th century, which is when the Venerable Bede was writing his ecclesiastical history of the English people. So he was using Anno Domini uh, AD for the the years uh, after Christ was born, but in his history went back to pre-Christian times. And so he felt the need uh, to find a way to distinguish the years before the Incarnation. And so it was Bede who introduced the designation B.C., meaning before Christ, which explains why B.C. is an English abbreviation, because it was an English uh, uh, historian who coined the term way back in the 8th century. Now, today, of course, some folks, beginning with the uh, folks in the universities, you know, the scholars, they, they want to use C.E. and B.C.E., which stand for Common Era and Before Common Era. Uh, and presumably because they don't wish to mark time by the incarnation of Christ. Uh, however, the fact remains that the BCE and BCE are exactly congruent with BC and AD, and and that means that it is precisely Christianity, it is the birth of Jesus, that makes this the common era. And that's no nonsense. Okay, when we come back next week, it'll be AD 2022, and we're going to try and start with a bang. I want to say thank you so much for being with us. I want to remind you that uh, there are a few days of the year of our Lord 2021 left, and if you would like to make a, uh, a d- uh, donation, one-time donation, or set up a monthly donation here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio, you can head to vmpr.org, hit the donate button and make your donation right there online. Or, uh, or call the office and, and speak to someone if you prefer. The point is that uh, you still have time to uh, enjoy the tax deduction for your charitable contribution if you make it before the 1st of 2022. So just a couple days left. Thank you so much for your support, uh, financial support, of course, but also especially your spiritual support. We do benefit from your prayers. And, and rest assured that we are uh, praying for you that we offer a Mass at the chapel for all our listeners regularly. And I uh, want to invite you back for the new year. And until then, thank you so much for listening. I'm Matthew Arnold. May God richly bless you and your family. <laughs>